just a, a blessing for me, a good thing for me to be able to come and to uh, be with you for the last uh, couple weeks. This is my third week here. Jamie has been in uh, Barrington, uh, Be Free Barrington, and uh, it's been good for me to be here with you. I'm so grateful <clears throat> for the uh, opportunity for, to hear prayer for uh, this morning, so I'm touched by that, so I'm trying to compose myself a bit. <clears throat> um, <laughs> So uh, let me, let me sedge way into a, <clears throat> a talk this morning that we're going to take a look at. We've been, the uh, last couple of weeks, just walking our way a little bit, a couple talks into Luke, taking a look at uh, Jesus eating with people and what we learn about God and about God's grace and about God's work in us and his call to uh, us to follow Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. And, and we, we've done that a little bit. And I want to uh, talk this morning, uh, and let me, let me try to figure out how to quickly introduce this, and I'm going to move fast through this um, this morning. Uh, and it, so I guess I, I'm, um, <clears throat> let me set this up. I'm, I'm over five decades old. In a couple years, I will be another speed limit coming up on that. But in the last couple years, I really feel like, the last couple years, like, I've been in a swirl, a kind of a swirl of, of confusion and dissonance. And the last couple of years, uh, I've been asking myself, uh, particularly, what is going on in our nation? What is going on in our culture? And, and what is going on in the church in the United States of America? Because I don't, don't really know anything else internationally. I haven't been there in a while. But I'm wondering, what is going on around us? And even particularly this last week or so with what's going on in Afghanistan, it just adds more to this swirl that I just feel like I'm in. And there's a great passage back um, in the Old Testament when God's people, his covenant people then, were in the swirl. They had problems within, problems around them, and so it's a difficult time. And you go back there to 1 Chronicles 12, and we read this little snippet. It's just there, then it moves on. The passage moves on. It says, from the tribe of Issachar... There were 200 leaders of the tribe with their relatives. All these men understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take, for the people to take. That's a stunning uh, little uh, passage that's tucked into uh, that section of Scripture there. And you come, uh, I come out of that reality that God has his people, and, 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 and there's some people that get a grasp of what's going on, because I think all of us need to become aware of well, what are the signs of our times? And, and how to figure the best way forward as followers of Jesus Christ uh, as a church, and as church families, how, what, how are we to go? What are we to think? How are we to push forward now in our culture, in this nation, in the 21st century? Spent a lot of my time, 20th century, mentioned that before, half my time now in the 21st century going on, a little bit less than half, all right? Because in the wake of an astonishingly uh, divisive 2020 election, 2016 was, was, was astonishing to me, divisive, because in, within our church family, we had people, going, believers, going at each other on social media, right? Uh, calling each other out, how could you vote like this? How could you think that? How could you be for this? Uh, we're watching uh, families that used to get together no longer get together because uh, of differences. It's like, it's just staggering that that could be the case. 
But in the wake of an astonishingly divisive 2020 election, right, and what I consider to be a disturbing year of pandemic, right, people are trying to figure out what is happening in our American culture, and others are trying to figure out what is happening in our American churches, because we are rife with this swirl of chaos and confusion and dissonance. It's, 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 it's where we're at. A recent uh, PBS, just a couple weeks ago, a PBS survey, or a few months ago, I should say, a couple months, uh, a recent uh, PBS survey found that 67% of the respondents think our democracy is in peril. Further, in my own reading, many Christian leaders are thinking that the same thing about the American church. Um, it, we're in difficult times. So what I want to do this morning is I want to introduce you to three books, two articles. And I'm going to uh, do that and move quickly along. And at the end, I'm going to bring a clear word from God. Uh, I'm just straight up confident it's God's word because I'm going to read it. All right. Three books trying to understand our times. There are hundreds, hundreds out there. These are the only three I've read. These are, all right, so I'll share these, right? I have a bunch. These are the ones that stick out for me. One is a, a book called Future Church by Will Mancini. Uh, and another is Telling a Better Story by Joshua Chatrow. It's a great book. I'm just uh, reading it. I'm going to read a little bit out of that right now, a little snippet. And then The Rise and the Triumph of the Modern Self uh, by Carl Truman, uh, who is a scholar over there at, uh, at uh, what's that college? What's it? What? I'll tell you. What is it? Let me check. It's Grove City. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, it's pretty cool. So let me let me do a, a quick read out of uh, telling a better story. And this is a good book. How to talk about God in a skeptical age. It's a good uh, a good run here. Let me see. He writes: the existing social structures and frameworks of belief that shape late modernism have led to a distrust of traditional religion and a disdain for anything that might suppress personal desires. This is the scope of the land here. Several years ago, when I was serving as a pastor in a rural church, a small group leader told me about a conversation she had just had with a high school student in her group. She had confronted the girl about the guys she had been hooking up with, and she had asked the student, why do you even go out with those sort of guys? They're clearly no good. The girl snapped back, who are you to tell me what the Bible says? Doesn't the Bible teach us not to judge others? You have no right to say whether they're good or bad, or whether, I, uh, or whether or not I should hang out with them. I, I'm doing what I feel is right. He writes, that response would sound strange to pre-modern or modern ears, yet today it's unsurprising, if not expected. It's a near-perfect reflection of the West's prevailing and pervasive assumptions. How pervasive? Well, <laughs> I love this statement. Well, one might expect this attitude from a teen in a big city in New England. We got one. Okay. But uh, this teen grew up and spent all her life in a small town in the Bible Belt. It's safe to say that she had never read an academic treatise of postmodernism or late modernism, nor was she, uh, her response the outpouring of conclusions reached through deep reflection. In fact, she had not thought through her response at all, but simply regurgitated the cultural influences and social structures of the day. She had, she had breathed in the air of late modernism and exhaled its values. Fascinating, right? Let me read more. You go, yes, yes, please. Okay. 
the rise uh, of, the, of the modern self, which is more of an academic read, but uh, I can read the parts that I understand. Uh, so in the beginning of the introduction, um, uh, Truman writes, it says, uh, the origins of this book lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. Now, I'm reading his words, okay? You don't have to agree with them. I'm just throwing it out there, all right? Don't shoot the messenger, right? Don't need emails or anything else. I'm all good, right? He writes, uh, and so um, why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. That statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. My grandfather died in 1994, less than 30 years ago, and yet had he ever heard that sentence uttered in his presence, I have little doubt that he would have burst out laughing and considered it a piece of incoherent gibberish. <clears throat> and yet today it is a sentence that many in our society regard as not only meaningful, but so significant that to deny it or to question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, <clears throat> or subject to yet another irrational phobia. And those who think of it as meaningful are not restricted to the veterans of college uh, seminars on queer theory or French uh, post-structuralism. They are ordinary people with little or no direct knowledge of the critical postmodern philosophies whose advocates swagger along the corridors of our most hallowed centers of learning. Um, I, I know, I'll be done here in a second. It goes like this. <clears throat> At the heart of this book lies a basic conviction. The so-called sexual revolution of the last 60 years, culminating in its latest triumph, the normalization of transgenderism, cannot be properly understood until it is set within the context of much broader transformation in how society understands the nature of selfhood. In short, the sexual revolution is simply one manifestation of the larger revolution of the self that has taken place in the West, and it is only as we come to understand the wider context that we can truly understand the dynamics of the sexual politics that now dominate our culture. And that is part of the swirl uh, that I have been wondering about and trying to figure out what's going on uh, in our culture. Let me give you uh, two articles I'm going to read from. I'm going to give uh, snippets of. I thought those books to you. Two articles trying to understand our times, because those are three books trying to understand our times. Here's a couple articles that are trying to understand our times as well. One, How America Fractured into Four Art uh, Parts. Uh, by George uh, Packer in uh, The Atlantic Magazine. It's a 25-page uh, article. They tend to do longer articles. So I'm giving you glimpses, just glimpses, uh, uh, snippets of it, right? So there's a lot more uh, to it. And then The Six-Way Fracturing of Evangelicalism by uh, Michael Graham uh, on a website, Mere Orthodoxy. You guys all set for this? You ready to go? All right, good. So I don't think there's any argument that one could observe in our country, our nation, and our culture today that uh, there is a fracturing, a segmenting into various tribes uh, where each tribe curates its own truths, its own information, its own news, uh, and its own cultural and political ideals. Uh, and so everybody's, people are trying to figure out why. Why does this happen? How did this happen? And so uh, I'm throwing this out. It might be helpful along the way, but it'll get me to my end point uh, from God's word. 
So let's take a quick look here at how America fractured into four parts. I suggest to you that it is a potentially helpful but not completely accurate perspective. People are just trying to get a handle, right? Trying to get handles. But it is helpful, very helpful uh, for us all here. All right. If you get a little, I read through this, if you get a little tweaked, you get a little upset, you find yourself getting a little offended, good, all right? It's what church mornings are all about, all right? So here we go. So you should, right? But here's what you ask yourself when you're getting tweaked, when you find, feel yourself getting offended, when you're, you're shaking your head. You, here's what you need to be asking yourself. Why? Why am I getting upset? Why am I being offended? Right? Why? Because that tells me something about myself. Could be accurate, could be inaccurate, but why? Uh, and so along the way here, it's all good. So through much of the 20th century, he writes, the two political parties had clear identities and told distinct stories. Uh, the Republicans spoke for those who wanted to get ahead, and the Democrats spoke for those who wanted a fair shake. Liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats played important roles in their respective parties. And he talks about how four parts now that we've moved into. Call the first narrative Free America. It launched into the, around the 1980s. Free America draws on uh, libertarian, anti-big government ideas, which it in installs in the high-powered engine of consumer capitalism. Capitalism, uh, he writes, is the true religion of this narrative. It's what we, it's what we believe, if you're in this, it's what we believe most in, uh, capitalism. It, it, it's sacrosanct. You remember what Churchill, Winston Churchill said, who was Prime Minister of Brit, uh, Britain back in the 1940s, got his people through uh, the uh, onslaught of, and the threat of Nazis, uh, Nazi Germany, and uh, an invasion. Remember that guy? What he said when asked about the, um, the you know, the, 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 uh, the structure of capitalism, he said, oh, it's the worst. The, the economic uh, philosophy of capitalism, he said, yeah, it's the worst, except for all the rest. Isn't that pretty cool? You like that? Oh, I just found it. Well, said, Don't worry, it went over like that in Barrington as well, so it's not a big deal. So. I think it's a stellar statement. Stellar statement. The freedom it champions is personal freedoms from government overreach. Its motto is not e pluribus unum, out of many, one, but rather indiv the uh, individualistic, don't tread on me. He writes, in the 1980s, free America politics would starve social programs and change antitrust policies to bring a new age of monopoly, making Walmart, Citigroup, Google, Amazon, and the likes the J.P. Morgan and Standard Oil of uh, a second gilded age. Continues, we'll call the second narrative, the, section, the second fracturing of America, call the second narrative smart America. Begins in the 90s. You have, heard, you, you have a hard time telling what part of the country uh, this group comes from because their local identities are submerged in the homogenizing culture of top universities and the elite professions. They believe, what, what, in credentials and expertise, not just as tools for success, but as qualifications for class entry. They're not so much nationalistic, but they do embrace capitalism and the principle of meritocracy, which is the belief that your talent and effort should determine your reward. That is, you get what you deserve, right? Those who make it can feel morally pleased with themselves. 
their talents, their discipline, their good choices, uh, you know, made them what they are today. And they can even have a grim kind of satisfaction when they come across uh, someone who hasn't made it. They can smugly think, egads, there but for the grace of God go I. Right? Under the watchful eye of their parents, the children of smart America devote exhausting amounts of energy to extracurricular activities for their children and carefully constructed personal essays that can navigate between boasting and humility. The goal of all this effort is a higher education that offers questionable learning, dubious fulfillment, likely indebtedness, but certain status. And that's the issue with this group's status. So anyway, how are you guys feeling so far? All right, I'll continue. Uh, the third narrative that he, he uh, suggests is real America, beginning in the 2000s. And he, he writes, in the fall of 2008, then uh, VP nominee uh, Sarah, uh, going with uh, John McCain, was uh, Sarah Palin spoke at a fundraiser in Greensboro, North Carolina, and when she said, we believe that the best of America is in these small towns that we get to visit, she said, and in these wonderful little pockets of what I call the real America. Being here with all of you hardworking, very patriotic, <clears throat> very pro-America areas of this great nation, those who are running our factories and teaching our kids and growing our food and are fighting our wars for us. And he writes, the idea that the authentic heart of democracy beats hardest in common people who work with their hands goes back to the 18th century with Thomas Jefferson and the 19th century with Andrew Jackson. He said the same thing. Uh, as the democratic creed turned openly populist, statements like the humble members of society, the farmers, the mechanics, and the laborers, the real Americans of that age. Self-government didn't require any special learning, just the native wisdom of the people. In the 20th century, real America has been evangelical and fundamentalist with a strong nationalistic character. Its attitude toward the rest of the world is isolationist, unless, uh, but it becomes uh, aggressive in any occursion against our national interests the narrative of real America is white and Christian nationalist. The fourth uh, narrative, he writes, is this, is unjust America. Um, and he pegs this to 2014. Do you know what 2014 was? That time frame, 2014? Think about it. I think this is accurate, isn't it? It's, it's when cell phones began having, uh, smartphones began having what? Uh, video reliable video cameras. Is that not true? Somewhere along there, right? And, and a lot of people had them. And what we began to see in 2014 were images and uh, videos moving on up um, all the way to George Floyd uh, um, of white cops killing unarmed black men. And it gripped the nation. Um, and so and it really helped launch a fourth narrative, he writes, is uh, unjust America. Unjust America does the hard, essential thing that the other three narratives avoid. It forces us to see the straight line that runs from slavery and segregation to the second-class life so many black Americans live today. The betrayal of equality that has always been the country's great moral shame, the heart of its social problems. And he has a great statement here. I, I like this. He says, for unjust Americans, the country is less a project of self-government to be improved 
than a site of continuous wrong to be battled. That's very enlightening for us to understand where people are coming from who have different views than us. Young people coming uh, uh, of age in the disillusioned 2000s were handed powerful ideas about social justice to explain the world. The ideas came from different intellectual traditions. The Frankfurt School in the 1920s Germany, French postmodernist thinkers of the 60s and the 70s, radical feminism and black studies. But they converged in American university classrooms. Two generations of students were taught to think as critical theorists. And I'm going to quick note on critical theory. Uh, he writes, trades the enlightenment values of objectivity, rationality, science, equality, and freedom of the individual, trades that out for an ideology by which there's one dominant group which subjugates another. Hence, there are two kinds of people in society. There are the oppressors and there are the oppressed. Which are you? Because there's just two. Critical theorists argue that the Enlightenment, including the American founding, carried the seeds of modern racism and imperialism. And just going through that and doing a little, quick, a little bit of reading on that is really helpful for me, personally, Understanding where people who have different perspectives than perhaps I or different backgrounds than I, it helps me understand where they're coming from. And I can actually make sense of some people when they're talking uh, on, on some of the issues now. I go, oh, okay, I get, I get what you're saying, where you're coming from. Don't have to agree with it, but I get, I get what you're saying and I can respect that. All right, how do you, you guys hold up all right all through that? You made it? All right, good. You got, a, got a couple more? You got another five minutes left in you? you go, sure, you knock yourself out. We got coffee this morning. Yes, all right. The six-way fracturing of evangelicalism, and I like to point out it's a potentially helpful but not completely accurate perspective. Again, not everybody's going to fit snugly into each of these categories, but it's, we're just trying to find handles. Help us figure the swirl that we're in. Can we get a, get, get a grab away, find a way out? So, um, <clears throat> yes, so they write this. New fractures are forming within the American evangelical movement. Uh, fractures that do not run along the usual regional, uh, denominational, ethical, ethnic, or political lines. So evangelical, in case, uh, you know, evangelical is, is, is basically a movement, and I'll talk about it in a second, and, and the, the focus is uh, God exists, and he uh, has given us revelation about himself in the Bible. It is the authoritative, inspired word of God. And we, there is one a savior that makes us right with God, and that is Jesus Christ. And uh, the, the, his people, the followers of Jesus, have a clear mission to tell others about Jesus and to represent him on planet Earth. And uh, the, 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 that's the, the rough details there. But he writes, uh, couples, families, friends, and congregations, once united in their commitment to Christ, are now dividing over seemingly irreconcilable views of the world. In fact, they are not merely dividing, but becoming incomprehensible to one another. Um, the reality is that while many in the evangelical movement thought their bonds were primarily theological or missional, many of those bonds were actually political, cultural, and socioeconomic, right? So these are, uh, yeah, so I'll move on real quick. So uh, one of the camps, he says, is the, uh, the right would potentially be the neo-fundamentalist, the new fundamentalist evangelical. Uh, Neo-fundamentalists are those who have deep concerns uh, about political and theological liberalism. They have overlap with Christian nationalism, which is a merging of right-wing uh, conservative uh, politics and cultural views with Christianity. And you take some scripture and you sprinkle that over it to sanitize it and Christianize it, and you're good to go. Uh, that's my own view. 
They think the church is drifting into liberalism and losing the culture war, which is a primary interest, and see the culture as hostile to Christianity, with, uh, driven by mass media, social media, and the government. And so that, that's one view, one camp. Another camp, he write, uh, they write, is the mainstream evangelical. The emphasis for this group is on the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Concerning threats within the church, there's concern for the destructive pull of Christian nationalism, but there's, there's more, far more concerned about the secular left's influence, and outside the church, this group is, uh, are likely uncomfortable with the rhetoric Trump and other conservatives have used, but view the, this direction that they're going in as the lesser of two evils out there. Neo-evangelicals, new evangelicals, are Christians who see themselves as evangelicals doctrinally, but not, might no longer use the term evangelical as it has evolved to be more political and theological. That is, if you're out in the street and you're saying, hey, what do you know about evangelicals? Oh, they vote Republican. Right? That would be the, the general view, whether we do or not. So they're trying to move away from that, that, that moniker. Um, within a, a, the church, they are highly concerned by uh, conservative Christianity's acceptance of Trump and the failure to engage on po topics of race and sexuality in helpful ways. Outside of the church, this group feels largely homeless in today's world. There is equal concern at the threat the left and the right pose to Christians seeking to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness. And then the a fourth is post-evangelical. Those people who have just said, look, that evangelical label, let's just get rid of it. Uh, but they're st uh, still going to church, still likely still agree with the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Concerning the threats within the church, they're focused on abuse, corruption, hypocrisy, Christian nationalism, and the secular right. Outside the church, they're primarily concerned about matters of injustice and inequity, um, and the radical secular left, and the radical secular right. De-church, deconverted, um, pretty close there. People who left the church but claim some basic Christian values, uh, beliefs of people who have left the church and renounced Christianity altogether. As you know, the, growing seg the fastest growing segment within America today are the nuns, right? Who have no connection to a, a religious affiliation. And as you also know, New Hampshire, we are number one in the country. We are the least religious uh, uh, state in all the nation, right? Only like 20% have any religious affiliation. Uh, so the, this, we win here. This is, we, are in a, we are in a great environment. Everywhere you go, you're surrounded by people who don't know Jesus and have never seen a Jesus follower or befriended one before. Perfect place for us to live. Why would you want to live in any other place? Right? This, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is it. Nothing any better than where we're at. We're, we're tip of the spear, baby. All right? So can I close with this? I, I appreciate your patience here. I'll be talking about the hope for the future. So the question remains uh, with us, um, you know, are we going to maintain a big tent concept of evangelicalism, which I'm a huge proponent of. It's like, it's like in the, the Lord of the Rings, you know, uh, the Frodo and Sam are trying to get up the mountain, the Maldor there, chuck a ring in a fire pit, and, uh, and they're barely making it, and Frodo wants to quit, and Sam says, uh, we can't quit. He says something like... Um, there's, there's still good in the world, and it's worth fighting for. And, and I think we're the same way with the evangelical phrase. It's, there's, it's, it's worth fighting for, you know. It's, um, it's such a neat thing, you know, because the big tent evangelicalism, can I talk to you for a second? It, is this? Okay, good. It's a hurricane. What are you going to do anyways, right? Um, 
So, and there's no NFL, so there's no rush. So, in evangelicalism, it's a big tent. So, let's take a look at a couple of issues. It's, it's like on creation. Uh, you know, there, there are people in the, in the, over here on this side of the tent that think we're in a young earth. You know, the earth's like 10,000 years old. There was a, a six-day literal 24-hour period of material um, God creating things, and, and there we go. And uh, there's people in the middle that go, ah, they're like gap theory. They think, well, I think there's a big gap in there to explain the dinosaurs and the fossil record and stuff like that. Well, how do you, I don't know, I just think it is. And then you go over here, there's people all the way along, different views all the way along, and there's people over here, theistic evolutionists, who think, well, God used evolution, and so there's no real time frame here. We, you, know, uh, uh, you know, all truth is God's truth, and science and math, they work. So uh, this is where we're at. Which, who's right? Right? Because godlier and smarter men and women than you or me have disagreed on this for 2,000 years. All right? Scholars have disagreed on this. So you go to the end times, you go, don't go there, but I will. You, you, you have people, you know, over here. That's how I cut my teeth uh, coming to faith as a senior in high school. It, uh, is, you have people over here, dispensationalists, they think, you know, they hold to a, there's going to be a, a rapture, and then there'll be a literal seven-year tribulation, right? Seven years, because we don't know when Jesus is coming back. And then uh, Christ returns, and then a literal thousand-year reign on, on earth, uh, that. And there are people who are over on this side that are amillennial. They go, dudes, we're already in that thousand-year reign. Jesus just has to come back. And then there's guys like me who are in the middle, who are historical pre-mill. We're like, yeah, you're both kind of right. You know, so uh, I can see both sides, but uh, I'll just stake my ground here. Well, who's right? Well, we'll find out, right? Right? Can I hang out with my dispensationalist friends all day long? All day long. Can I walk over here, hang out with my all-male friends? Oh, yeah, all the time. Those guys are great, right? So pick your issue, right? These... So th this is just what it means to be an evangelical. We're not separating and starting our own churches because we have different views on these non-essentials. On the issues of politics, it was always, in the evangelical church, it's always vote your conscience. Just vote your conscience, right? It's probably important to vote, but just vote your conscience because that's between you and God. And we can agree to disagree. We can vote differently, right? And uh, because our slogan is in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, but in all things charity, this love, because that equals maturity, right? And so that's, that's what we're headed. So I'm willing to, to just persevere and keep trying to live that out and call others to, to, to honor that. All right, so I'm almost done, so just give me a minute, <laughs> right? So, so I, as fracturing takes place, what the article is talking about here, is this keeps taking place in America because we're, we're just curating you know, the information that we like, and we're, we're only trying, what's well, moving, not we, but uh, there's a it's just a, a tendency to, to get together and only want to be with people who think just like us. And we're looking, listen to the phrase here, like-mindedness. You ever hear that? You know where that phrase comes from? I'll tell you, the cults. All right? I always want to be with like-minded people. There's no diversity in like-minded. I mean, we can be like-minded on Jesus, right? <laughs> but you talk about in all things, we're going to be just around people just like us. It's uniformity. It's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. So 
Here's what was going on in the 1920s, 100 years ago. American society was in upheaval. They had these guys called anarchists running around. You had communists running around, fomenting issues. You had uh, uh, little bits of terrorism and violence, uh, bombings and stuff taking place. There was rampant racism and uh, violence uh, in racism. And the American church was facing a threat, a big honking threat. You know what it was? I'll tell you what it was. It was, and it, 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 it crescendoed into a trial. It was called the Scopes trial. It, it was about what? Evolution. And the church thought, oh, we're going to come undone. We'll never, we'll never get through here. We'll never make it through. Well, that's 100 years ago. 1940s, the American church saw a deep division between uh, liberals on the left, fundamentalists on the right, uh, and, the, the, and then here comes evangelicalism, straight up the middle, right? Saying we, we can be cared about social justice and share the good news of Jesus Christ at the same time. It's not either or. It's both and. That's evangelicalism. That's why I'm all in. So, Here's my thought to you guys this morning. <laughs> is perhaps we're in a, a similar time in the 21st century, or perhaps not, but, but here's my point. He, maybe in our day, we are involved in testing times where God is testing the metal of his people here, the depth of our, of our faith, uh, the commitment we have to his words, right, rather than our culture. Where do our true allegiances lie? Because I want to give you God's word for today. And I hear it is right now. You know the one prayer that Jesus has for you and for me, it is completely helpful, and it is an accurate perspective. Want me to read this to you? Because I will. Here it is. John 17. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, Father, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world... I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. Now, here's the, here, here, listen to this. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. And I pray what? That they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. So somehow our unity is a witness, is part of our mission. And unity requires diversity. There, without diversity, there can be no unity. There's just unanimity, or uniform, uniformity, right? Diversity is the essential ingredient. Do you know where you live today? I, New Hampshire. Most of you live, may live in New Hampshire. Maine. Okay, you say I live across the board. Okay. All right. Top three whitest states in America. You know what they are? Maine, Vermont, and New Hampshire. What's my point? We don't have a lot of uh, uh, ethical diversity. So any diversity we see, we better muckle on, right? You find somebody that disagrees with you on anything, you should go, come on in, man. Can you be my friend? Right? Can you come to my church? Be a part of our church. Well, I don't really agree with that. Exactly. Get in here. Get in here right now. Right? So, so, so you know, we just should be growing in this. You go, well, what about the scriptures? It's not chucking the scriptures. God's words, you know, straight up. We don't have to go freaking out about it. 
but we can certainly uh, grow in our diversity on these on non-essential issues, right? And meet people where they're at all along. All right, well, I'll close with this. Here's the cool thing. When you see unity happening, it's just natural and normal humanity to want to get into our own little groups, our own little tribes. Tribalism is just a human issue, right? It's so human. Unity with diversity that is on mission is a supernatural work of God. Which would you rather be a part of in the short lives, the short years that you have? Which would you rather be a part of? I'll take this endeavor with Jesus Christ every single time. And that's our call, all right, from God's word. And close, uh, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for the lives that you have called us to or are calling us to in following Jesus. We get to be here on planet Earth as a part of, as representatives of what you're doing. And I pray, God, you'd help us to grow in our love for you and love for one another with all our diversity, with all our issues, God. Uh, We're all saved by grace. Amen. All right, would you stand? We're going to close with... uh...